You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Once again, we're in Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 1. So Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy birthday to you, Providence. Glad that you're here. Yeah. So this is our nine-year anniversary as a church. We're glad that you're here. Hopefully you guys get to enjoy your time uh, after gathering. There's going to be lots of festivities. It's, uh, I told the nine o'clock service, like, if you guys want to come back, listen, we know why you're here is so that you might not come back uh, after the nine o'clock service, but you're welcome. Okay. And so they, they may be here too, but we're just glad uh, that you guys joined us this morning. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors at the church. If it is your first time, we want to say welcome. We're glad you're here and uh, we're glad you made us a part of your week. So we're going to continue our march through the book of Exodus, which we've been in for, uh, well, since January, we've been working through the book of Exodus. And uh, this morning, we're going to be focusing on kind of the tail end of what's the preamble up into the plagues of Egypt, the famous plagues of Egypt that uh, come upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptian people. And so this text comes on the heels of last couple of weeks as uh, Moses has confronted Pharaoh with Aaron and, and Pharaoh has not responded any any repentance or to let the people go, but instead has laid the burdens on uh, the children of Israel, even heavier. And so um, what I want to focus on, though, this morning is not the physical battle that's going on here or the physical confrontation, uh, but what I believe is that the very heart of not just this text, but the whole of the Exodus story, which is the cosmic battle that's happening, the cosmic battle that is waging on behind the scenes as Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh and his magicians. And so before we jump into the, the text this morning, if we're going to be talking about these kinds of spiritual things, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to them. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you. First and foremost, we come to you in thanksgiving that you have built your church and that we are a part of that. I thank you, my God, for providence and the gift that providence has been to me 
and to my family and to so many. But most of all, we thank you that you have made us into a people for your own possession. We thank you for all of the nine years, and we pray for many more to your glory, that many more people might come to know you, and that many more people might live their lives in joy serving you as your kingdom advances and your glory covers the earth as the water covers the sea. We, we pray that we can be a part of that, and we just thank you for all that you've done in and through us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, now that you'd open the eyes of our hearts that as we jump into your word and we keep the, the main thing, the main thing again this morning, beyond any of our own earthly celebrations, we want to celebrate here about the truths of the gospel that are eternally true, both in the physical and in the spiritual. And we ask that you'd give us eyes to see that. Father, for that, those of us who are injured and need healing, we pray that you would do so. For those of us who are distraught and need comfort, we pray that you would do that in your word. For those of us who are wandering and need to be brought back, we ask that you'd bring us back. For those of us who are wayward, we ask that you'd show us the way in your name. Because Lord, you know what we need desperately, and so we do ask for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's start chapter number seven, and I want to just read through the first seven verses here. Scripture says this, the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. A couple things happening here, uh, but what we see here is a micro version of the simple command that God has been through the mouth of Moses and through the mouth of Aaron, commanding that Pharaoh would let the people go. You know, you've probably seen this, whether it be in a cartoon version or, you know, maybe Charlton Heston version. You know, let the people go. Um, this gets expounded on a couple of times. Let the people go that they may worship the Lord out in the mountain. But ultimately, that's at the very crux of what God is telling Pharaoh to do. Let's go verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. If you write in your Bibles, that might be something to underline. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to the Pharaoh. So not only does God give us the account that this simple command is going to be given unto Pharaoh that he would let the people go, but he also warns Moses and Aaron of something. He warns them, when you ask Pharaoh of this, he won't listen to you. And he explicitly states something that's troubling for many theologians, and it's been troubling for a long time, and that is, I will harden his heart so that he wouldn't listen to you. God's going to be the one who hardens his heart so that the whole of Egypt might experience the signs and the wonders that God is going to multiply among them. Israel's going to be set free, but he tells Moses, until the fullness of my judgment is poured out on Egypt, it's not going to happen. Now the question is, why? Why would you do that, Lord? And he gives us one singular answer, which if we're not seeing beyond the five senses, we might miss. He says, I will do this so that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. 
so the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. Okay, here's my case. The real action going on here in this story is beyond what we can see, taste, touch, smell. You know, it's beyond the five senses. The real heart of this, we got to peel back the curtains and recognize the spiritual realities that are happening here as Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh and the magicians. That's what's happening in the physical. When we peel back the curtain, though, we see that there's something else entirely happening behind the scenes. The battle's not only not between Pharaoh and Moses, it's also not between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Although that's going to play itself out over the course of the next three or four chapters, the real battle is between the Lord, Yahweh, and the false gods of Egypt. The real battle is between the I am and the pagan gods that lead the, the Pharaoh and that lead the magicians into their dark art. God's intention is not for the Israelites to wage war against the Egyptians. It's not for Moses and Aaron to wage war against the Pharaoh, but his intention is to wage war himself against the false gods. And Pharaoh is a representative of these gods. Like in order for us to understand the uh, context of this passage, you have to know a little bit about the context of Egyptian mythology and Egyptian paganism. The pharaoh at this point in this dynasty of the Egyptian kingdoms would have represented two things. One is he's the representative of the pantheon of gods. Okay, so he's the one who rules in the name of these false gods. But also at some point, probably with this pharaoh, Ramses II's father, the pharaohs began to fancy themselves gods in their own right. And so they were not only harnessing the power of the false gods, but they also themselves would rule in the might of a god. This is why you started to see the statues of the Egyptians would not only be in the form of their own sphinxes and gods, but begin to be in the, in the shape of their pharaoh as a god as well. So what does God do? God tells Moses, I'm going to make you a god unto pharaoh. I'm going to set you against him as a representative of me, but if he fancies himself a god, you'll rule over him like a god. That's what I'm going to do. And then, of course, you see the other characters, which we often totally miss. We totally miss these characters, or we just kind of close our eyes to them. And I'm going to tell you why we do this in a bit. But we close our eyes to the magicians, these priests that show up. And they are Egyptian ma magicians who basically begin from the starting line here up until about the third or fourth plague. They do the same signs that Moses does. They wield the power of the false gods in order to maintain that Pharaoh has his rule. That's what the magicians are meant to do. And so what does God do? God says, I'm going to tell you, Moses, not to just wield your power, but just like Pharaoh tells the magicians to wield the power, you tell Aaron to wield the power, and there will be a face-off. Aaron's going to face off with them in the power of Yahweh, and the magicians are going to face off in the power of their false gods. But then we get, and God will do what? Even when he wins this, God will do what? He will harden Pharaoh's heart. So why? Well, we have to recognize, and this is true, both of spiritual battles and earthly battles, is there, there's always a hierarchy of value that every general or every king has to grapple with. It looks something like this. When a king goes into battle or a general goes into battle, they have to answer the question, what's the most important outcome of this war for our people? Maybe something like, what must we get at all costs? Sometimes there's an armistice that's made, and it's a simple territory battle. So it's like, well, we got to keep this land 
at least, even if we have to give away this, every, every country kind of has this bottom line. You can see this throughout the course of human history that sometimes there's peace deals, there's treaties, there's armistice, ceasefires, but it's all kind of like, what's our bottom line as a nation? And then sometimes, whether it's territory battles, ideological battles, sometimes you get battles of pride, right? So it's just that this, this country made us angry, so we're going to fight against them. And then sometimes over the course of years, they kind of make deals. And then there are the battles, though, that the most important outcome supersedes the terms of peace. Sometimes the evil of one side, whether it's perceived or real, is so egregious that one side says the highest value is on destroying the threat of this tyrant and doing so publicly so that everyone would know in in future generations that you cannot do this. An example of this was like World War II. At some point, the Allied powers got together and said, it's not enough to have treaties. It's total war and total surrender. Nothing else will do. And the reason for this given was things like the Holocaust. This can never happen again, therefore publicly it has to end, and it has to end with total surrender. So what do we do with this spiritual battle in this text? What I see here very clearly is that God has deemed the most valuable outcome of this cosmic battle with the Egyptian gods is nothing less than utter humiliation. He will not permit Israel to be let out the back door by this Pharaoh. They're not just going to say, okay, fine, get out of here, and nobody has to know about it. No, God intends to wage war publicly so that all the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. He wants everyone involved. In a a few chapters, God's going to say, I want the Egyptians to know. I want Israel to know. I want the Pharaoh to know. And then finally, he will say, I want the nations to know that I am the Lord. And therefore, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I want you to remember that sometimes our difficulty with this theologically is because we're sympathizing a bit with the humanity of Pharaoh. But never forget, to sympathize with the Pharaoh in this instance is to ignore the depth of his atrocities. God has confronted this Pharaoh because he had been a murderer of children and babies. He had presided over the enslavement of the Hebrews. He had an evil regime that rivaled maybe the most evil of all time. But most importantly, Egypt had not only been an idolatrous group, led by a pharaoh who led all of his people into idolatrous worship, but Egypt had become an exporter of that idolatry. All of the nations were being snowed by Egypt's pharaoh and the power, the false power that he wielded. And so when God says, I'm going to harden his heart, he does so so that all the nations would know this is the liar and I am the truth. These are the false gods who enslave you. I am the God who frees you. Don't think it's small, a small thing that God is saying, let my people go. When you know that I am the Lord, you get freed. That's the, that's the big idea here. Okay. I want to make the case that I believe Christians today, we need a deep and significant spiritual reawakening. That there's a spiritual battle being waged all around us. And because we have been trained, and I would venture to say perhaps chained, in believing that all that matters is what we, can, what we can see or experience with our five senses, we miss that the Bible is written under the worldview that there is not only a material world, but an immaterial world. There's not only a natural world, but a spiritual world. In the very person of Christ, who is the Lord of Christianity, we see the hypostatic union, which is a big word that simply means Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And in 
in, in Christ, we understand all of the universe, the known universe, which is what? That it is both material and it is spiritual. Which means that when we see political upheaval or societal division or cultural degradation or global disease or famine or even weather phenomenon, we have to acknowledge these are not merely issues that can be handled in only the material because there's more to it than that. I'm convinced that even the church has been disenchanted enough to agree to terms that the Bible does not give us. We've begun to abandon our spiritual heritage, and so in so doing, we've become political tools wielded by various factions rather than the people of God recognizing that which is both natural and supernatural. That is both material and spiritual, physical, metaphysical, natural, supernatural. This is the biblical worldview. You can be sure of one thing. In every situation, at all times, in all of human history, there are always at least two levels of understanding to anything that happens. There's one understanding that can be reasoned with the five senses. When you see a headline on the news, you can reason yourself through it. And that's fine. That's one level. What's happening right before my eyes? What's the reasonable conclusion that I can draw? And then there's a second level, which is what is the spiritual reality beyond what I can see? That's the one that we've totally neglected. If you have your Bibles, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. You can keep your hand in Exodus, by the way. Also, if you don't want to turn there, it should be posted on the screen behind me. But we're going to come back to Exodus. But 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. I want to read through this. This is, what, this is Paul the Apostle. And he is writing to the Corinthian church about spiritual things and natural things. And the relationship between the two. And he's also exhorting them, a Roman church, under the Roman Empire, Gentile church, about their worldliness or about their five-sense materialism. Listen to what he says here. These first five verses, I think they give you, you could draw a straight line between Paul and Moses. Let's read it. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. It's interesting. Paul sounds a lot like Moses, right? I'm not eloquent. Can't really speak well. I'm terrified. I'm scared. My voice is trembling. Knees are knocking. I didn't come to you as a great order. And he tells you why in verse 5. So that your faith might rest in, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the purpose. Now, does that mean that there's no wisdom in the Lord? No, let's go to verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Okay, so there's, there's a level here of maturity that you have to reach in order to understand what he's about to say. Although it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, underline rulers, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age, you can underline that again, understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We're going to come back to this in a moment. In short, he is saying that Christ and the crucifixion would not have been done by the powers that be had they understood something that is immaterial and unseen. Verse 9 
underscores that. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, these things God revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, materialism, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, check this out, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. If you're, not, if you're wondering what's the context of this chapter, it has everything to do with trying to call you into that which is spiritual and out of that which is physical. Bring your mind up into that which you cannot see so that you can understand what you do see. Bring your mind into that which you cannot sense with your own skin so that you can understand the things that you feel. We've done the exact opposite in our culture. Emotions matter way more than truth. You know, It's like everything you feel, that's the way you can discern things. God says it's the opposite of that. You cannot trust all that you taste, touch, feel, five senses. You've got to actually transcend that through what? Christ and the spirit that Christ has given. In case you think I'm crazy, let's just read the last three verses, which prove all of this. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Okay. So the unspiritual person, the natural person, the fleshly person isn't going to accept this. Why? Because they're folly to him, foolish. Meaning, check this out, when we try to explain away the things in your Bible that make you seem foolish to your neighbor, what you're doing is abandoning the power that God's given you. When you try to rationalize everything that you read, you're taking the very power that God's given you away by saying, oh, well, that's not really what the Bible says, you know. You're telling me that God... Brought all the animals into an ark. Can I just cat out of the bag for a minute? Yes, that's what I believe. You're telling me that your God, God became a child? Yes. You're telling me that Jesus cast out? Yes. Made the bread from a little boy's lunch, fed 5,000? That's what I believe. Yes. And the moment we start saying things like, well, you know, technically in the, in the Hebrew it says, in the original Greek it doesn't really mean loaves. He fed them spiritually. Here's what I want to say to that. Stop doing that. Cut it out. Stop being ashamed of that which is plainly stated. It it is every single biblical author who has no problem recognizing that they have a supernatural worldview. They don't apologize for it. They even triple down on it. Paul doesn't come in with rationalism. He comes in and says things like, hey, don't you know that you're the temple of God and that you get to judge angels? And when you're like, what? He says, yeah. Anyway, so back to what I was saying. And it doesn't even say anything else. It's, it's over and over again. I mean, you read the scriptures and you, if, you, if you just paused for a second, like for instance, in the Exodus story, it's like, and then the magicians showed up and they did it too. And we're all like, let's just move on. Wait a minute, you're telling me there was some sort of Harry Potter type magic going on and the Pharaoh had his own crew and he also made a staff into a stake and he also turned the water into blood and he also made frogs show up? The answer is yes. That's exactly what the Bible says. And the moment you start trying to trivialize that is the moment that you now have a naturalized materialistic faith that is in no way congruent with the God of the Bible. So what should we do instead? 
Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. And here's what I want to say about C.S. Lewis. He's not exactly what you consider a Pentecostal, if you've ever read anything by him. Okay? Very orthodox, thinker. Listen to what he says in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory. And I just want to tell you, this is like 70, 80 years old. How real is it today? He says this as he's writing. And, and Lewis had a way of writing that, that would almost like put you under a trance. And so he recognizes that and he writes this. He says, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have the need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all of our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. Close quote. C.S. Lewis thought that you and I were underneath an enchantment called worldliness and that the savage gods mocked us because with our own mouths we denied their existence as they blindfolded us. And he said what we need is another power, a superior power to break that enchantment. And I want you to know this is an Oxford professor, guys. I'm not talking to you about, you know, some guy you met on the side of the road who started spouting off kooky things. The question is, how are we viewing the world? How are we viewing our lives? Christians, the answer is that we ought to view the world as the kingdom of God advancing against the kingdom of darkness. We are in a cosmic battle of both body and soul, material and immaterial, and these things are waging around us all of the time. See, Israel in this text is saying, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing the Pharaoh to bring this this horrible judgment upon us? Why are you letting them continue to keep our burdens even worse? And then we do the same thing as Christians. We look at the world and say, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing us to suffer, Lord? Why are these things happening? And God's answer has always been the same, that the world may know that I am the Lord. That's why he's doing it. Why does God permit suffering and injustice? Because he has a hierarchy of value. Do you know what's more important than us not having a tough time? It's that the world might know that the Lord is the Lord. It's more important. It doesn't mean that he thinks our suffering is unimportant. It simply means that the most important thing is that the world would know. And at times, our own comfort come, it comes into direct conflict with the world knowing, and God chooses what? The world knowing that he is the Lord. Every tear you've ever cried, every hardship you've ever faced, why, O oh Lord, that the world might know that I am the Lord? a simple answer, but it's tough to wrestle with. Okay. Exodus chapter 7, I want to go back and read starting in verse 8. Once again, it's going to be put up behind me, so you don't have to necessarily turn back there because I am going to read a little more from 1 Corinthians in a moment. Chapter 7, starting in verse 8. So then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh asks you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. These are the same words that were asked of Jesus. This is pretty common. Prove that you are who you say you are, right? Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. That's a, that's a magical sign, right? It's a wonderful, glorious sign. Let's see what happens after. So then Pharaoh summoned the wise men, the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, 
And they also did the same by their own secret arts. That word secret arts, this is paganism, dark spirituality. The, the, the weirdest movies you've ever watched, times that by a million, that's the kind of stuff that's going on in Egypt. Like you thought Brendan Fraser and the Mummy was creepy. Just, you know, just read a history book. They did some, woo, dark stuff. The pyramids are cool. Well, you watch the History Channel about it. You know what's underneath there? They thought it was the underworld. It's the creepiest of creepiest of creepy places. And the stuff that they did, you would not even tell it as a story, you know, in, in your most secret times. It's dark. Watch what happens, though. Each man casts down his own staff. First thing you need to notice is it's not just one wise man versus Moses and Aaron. It's a lot of them. What does that represent? You have Yahweh, the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then you have the pagan gods, many of them. All these men are all around. They all throw their their staffs down. What happens? They all turn into snakes. So immediately, what does it look like? It looks like Yahweh's outnumbered now. It looks like the Lord's outnumbered. Many snakes rise up. I want you to picture this. And there's one snake as he's surrounded. Let's know what the Bible says. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So one snake swallows the rest up. And then, of course, according to the word of the Lord, what happens? You would think everybody would be like, whoa. Oh, no, it says this in verse 13. But still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen. So let's take a peek into the New Testament here. What's really going on? We know that Christ is our greater Moses. So what does that mean that Christ is our greater Moses? Well, it means that even still today, Christ is intent on bringing us into direct conflict with the Pharaohs of our day. Think about it. Jesus didn't stop when he was brought by the Spirit into the wilderness to have a face down with the devil. This is regularly happening. In the book of Acts, you see it. God is doing what? Wiring Paul's life so that he might bring him before who? Before kings. And Paul is going to have to face off with what? Not just Agrippa, not just Pontius Pilate, not just Herod, not just those rulers, not Felix, not Festus, oh, but Caesar. He's going to bring him into direct confrontation with the gods of the day. Obviously, we have Aaron being commanded by Moses, the Christ figure, just as you and I are commanded daily by Jesus. He speaks to us in his word, and he commands us to be obedient. He tells us when to be silent and when to talk. He tells us when to act and when to reserve our action. And the most important thing that we can take is that the obedience is the call. God is showing his power, but what happens with the magicians? They are the counterfeit to God's power. I want you to hear me on this. The Christian doesn't believe that the worldly system has no power. The Christian believes that the worldly system is a counterfeit to that which is God's power. I'll give you examples. The power of God frees you. The Christian believes the power of the world enslaves you. The wisdom of God humbles you. The wisdom of the world puffs you up with pride. The satisfaction of God makes you content. The satisfaction of the world makes you crave more and more and more. The acceptance of God brings you peace in his approval. The acceptance of the world brings further strife as you long and long for more approval. You see, it's not that the Christian believes there's nothing to be said about the powers of darkness. It's that the powers of darkness are counterfeit inversions of that which is true. And the Christians need to recognize this. Rather than trivializing the powers of darkness, we should be exposing them for what they are but we have fallen victim to not even acknowledging them at all. We've fallen victim to pretending that they don't exist. One of the biggest takeaways that I take from this text is 
being in the right doesn't always mean that you see victory in the moment. Moses and Aaron are here, and, and they technically win the spiritual battle. The serpent of Aaron swallows up the staffs of the magicians. But do you know what happens in the physical? Mo, a Pharaoh hardens his heart, and the, and the Israelite people are under more burdens. <laughs> Aaron wins the battle, but he does not get the spoils of war. <laughs> Let's just put it like that. Christian, we are not promised immediate victory. We are promised eternal victory. You are not promised immediate victory. You are promised eternal victory in Christ. It's through our endurance and obedient faith that God has chosen to bring the victory about that he won on the cross of Calvary. What do we do when obedience doesn't end up in our favor? The answer is what Moses and Aaron are called to do here, which is to be faithful to God's promise and just come back again and again as he calls. Okay. What's the central promise the Christians call to remember, though? Here's what I'll tell you. It's not the promise of Egypt. It's what the promise of Egypt to the Israelites was meant to signify. You see, Moses and Aaron are meant to remember the promise that God said he's going to take us out. But the Christian is meant to remember the promise of Christ, the cross and the resurrection, and that he has promised to take us out. That's our promise that we're remembering. I want to read to you again, just to focus in on 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is Paul's theology. And once again, I want to remind you, um, if the writers of the Bible don't seem to shy away from this kind of language, maybe we shouldn't either. Another way to put it would be like this. Do we really think that Satan minds if we don't agree that he exists? I would venture to say that he loves that. He enjoys it, and here's what he does. He mocks you often about it. Paul didn't live that way. None of the disciples lived that way. None of the Old Testament writers lived that way. So why are we? Here's what Paul says. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to start in verse 6. He says, among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. They're doomed to pass away. Listen to me. The rulers of this age, as he uses it twice here, in your Bible are used in two ways. And sometimes it's material rulers. This would be like Caesar. This would be like Nebuchadnezzar. This would be like Cyrus. And sometimes it's spiritual rulers. And listen to me, sometimes you can't interpret it any other way than spiritual. Let me give you one example. Daniel is praying in the book of Daniel. And it's said that the angel Gabriel shows up to Daniel in his prayers. And he says, Daniel, I heard you pray from the moment that you first prayed 21 days ago. But I couldn't get to you. Because the prince of Persia was holding me up. And I had to call Michael the archangel to battle the prince of Persia so that I could make it to you to bring God's answer. Can I tell you something? There's no other way to explain that other than spiritually. Here's why. Gabriel doesn't have to fight princes of Persia. He doesn't even travel that way. Did you know that? Angels don't have to travel with chariots on camels. He's not battling against real Persian princes. Secondarily, why, if he's battling Persian princes, isn't he calling Israelite warriors? He's calling Michael the archangel to battle. And let me just, the final thing, if you really had a, an earthly prince battling against Michael, you think it's a long fight? Like they really battled it out. Michael barely got him. No, the Bible says Joshua showed up into the pagan territory of the Canaanites, and he said, I saw one that was as of the captains of the armies of the living God, and I fell on my face, and I said, are you for us, or are you against our enemies? And the angel of the Lord answered, no, I am for the Lord. Joshua was the 
bad boy of Israel. He wasn't afraid of anyone. He walked into the giant's camp as a spy and said, we can take him. And you know what he said when he saw the angel of the Lord? Please tell me you're on our side. When you see the words like rulers, principalities, authorities, and Paul is using those, or the Bibles, sometimes they're talking about earthly. Many times there's no other way to explain it other than spiritual. This is one of those times. Do you know why? The whole chapter's about the difference between the natural and the spiritual. That's the context. That's the context of the passage. The context of the passage is stop thinking only naturally and start thinking spiritually. Why then would he say, so just think about defeating, defeating the Caesar? No. Paul specifically here is saying that the spiritual rulers of the day were so unwise that they crucified Christ to their own demise. He's saying if they knew the true spiritual wisdom, they wouldn't have done what they did. How do I know he's talking about spirits again? Because in the Bible it says that Judas was sitting at the table of the Lord and Satan entered his heart to make him do what he was going to do. Judas was not just a disciple that was led astray. Judas was spiritually motivated and possessed by the dark leader of the legions of Egypt. To do what? To do what every one of those pagan gods did in all of human history, which is to try to win through defeat materially. And you know what Christ did? Submitted himself to it and won. In other words, the powers of darkness, if they knew the fullness of God's plan, would not have done what they did, and they did anyway. So what does it mean for us? Well, I want to I say this to you. Maybe this will be helpful for someone. What seems to your natural eye as God snatching victory from the cause of defeat is often simply the outworking of God's perfect power and wisdom on display. Listen to me. Jesus did not accomplish salvation by the skin of his teeth. It wasn't even a close one. Do you know that? Jesus wasn't barely accomplishing it. He has always known exactly what would happen, what was going to happen, and the rulers of this day played directly into his hands. Why? Because he is who he is. They were, they were going to do this. The Trinity was never looking up into the heavens and saying, like, ooh, that was a close one. I'm glad that the whole resurrection worked out. It was going to happen. When you think that, man, God just, at the last minute, he just scooped me up and he saved me from, that's in your sense, in your material sense. Most certainly he did. Why did he do that? Could he not have done it before? Of course he could have done it before. He did it so that you would know that he is the Lord. Many times God will rescue us at the last minute so that all of our material rescuers have abandoned us and he will reveal to us, only I am the Lord. He'll bring you to your wit's end because you will worship whatever God you think saves you. And sometimes we might think our bank account saved us at the last minute. My boss came in and gave me a bonus. Listen to me. Sometimes the Lord just needs you to know it's only him. And he'll bring you to the wits end for that reason. The Bible says that this was accomplished even on the cross through the obedience of the Lord Jesus. That Christ cried out for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Lord, if this cup could pass for me, please let it be so. But even as the Lord said, this is the only way, he obeyed in suffering and he obtained salvation for us all. The answer that I get from that is, okay, court, fine, there's a spiritual battle being waged. What am I supposed to do about it, though? Well, here's what I'll say. It's not like the Bible's silent about this. If it is the big theme that I'm telling you it is, and it is, the Bible talks a whole lot about it. 
like Paul's got an entire chapter in, the, in Ephesians where he writes to the church and says, hey, there's this entire armor you're supposed to put on. You think that was just like only for the kids' ministry? <laughs> you know? It's like, oh, that's a fun kids. Eh, wrong. <laughs> Talks about it all the time. But here's what I'll say. The most fundamental way that you wage war is faithful obedience. That's what we see all throughout the Old Testament. That's what you see all throughout the New. Notice I say faithful obedience. I mean full of faith obeying the word of the Lord. Full of faith knowing that our actions can't save us, but full of faith that God saves us and then obeying his word. Moses, you turning the Nile to blood will not rescue you one bit. God will rescue you. Just be obedient to what he says. That's the simple task that's given to us. And so I want to survey this morning together. I want to ask each other, both individually and familiarly, this question. What is the Lord Jesus commanding of me today that I have been reticent to do because I am afraid of that which my five senses tell me? I'm worried that the outcome in my five senses will be this, which is negative, and therefore I'm reticent to be obedient. Because my encouragement to you is, in faith, trust that God sees what you cannot see. And in the act of obedience, the war is being waged, even if it looks like you just set yourself up for a lot of hardship. That's what it looked like to Moses and Aaron. Why would you go to the Pharaoh and say this? You've made us a stench in his sight. What's being set up is the great exodus of 1.8 million Jews out of the house of bondage and into the promised land. But it didn't look all that great at first. So in a very simple sense, what is it for you that you know? And I don't mean, hey, the Lord, you know, woke me up this morning and told me this audibly. Maybe that is true. That's amazing. I'd love to talk to you about it. But here's what I'll say. Most of us didn't have that experience, right? Most of us, though, need to be reminded that God has revealed himself in his word. And there's, a, there's at least a handful of things that we know we ought to be doing that we don't do on a regular basis. And usually it's because we think the outcome will not be what we'd like. And my encouragement is, Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Maybe it's generosity. Maybe it's sacrificing something in this argument, this ongoing argument you've had with your spouse for years, laying that down. Maybe it's a friendship that needs to be reconciled. You think, oh, it's never going to go well. Here's what I'll say. When Jesus told his disciples, I have to go to the cross and I have to be killed, Peter looked at him and said, no way. Far be it from you, Lord, I won't let it happen. This is because Peter knows him as the Savior. He's saying, in in the flesh, there's nothing about you submitting yourself to this empire that would be good for us. No way I'll let them kill you. Do you know what Jesus told him? Right after he just told Peter, man, you're doing great. The Father revealed to you who I am. Like nine verses later, he looks at Peter and he doesn't say, hey, bad idea. He doesn't say, don't say that again. He says, get behind me, Satan. He recognizes exactly who's talking to him. And he says, you have not set your mind on the things of the kingdom of heaven, but you've set your mind on the things of the earth. Peter, you're only looking in the earthly sense, and I am seeing heavenly things. Not only am I going to die, I must. So I want to leave you with that. Perhaps that which you are called to be obedient to God in is the only way And you have rejected that way. Here's what I'll tell you. Jesus is a faithful and good shepherd, a loving shepherd, a kind shepherd. And what he is doing to you this morning is he's guiding you back to that point of decision.
Finally, I want to say this because I'd be remiss not to. Maybe today the obedient step for you is simply to believe in Christ for salvation. You have not trusted Jesus as Savior. And maybe it's because you think, like the Bible says, that it's foolish, it's crazy. Why in the world would I believe that stuff? It's all malarkey. Here's what I'll tell you. The door is open for you today. The door of the ark stands wide open. And I know that you think the chubby guy on the stage talking about rain is a nut. The door is open for you, friend. That which has been spoken by the Lord will come to pass. It is the truth. And he opens his arms to you. And so maybe that obedient step this morning before anything else, before joining a home group, before starting to say, I'm going to come to church. No, faith, simple faith in Jesus. And I want to make that invitation to you. Because here's what I'll say, both for the believer and the unbeliever this morning, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus is able to save to the uttermost forever. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm, uh, I'm just humbled by the spiritual realities that are going on all around us that we don't even see or sense with our own eyes and heart. We pray now, would you give us eyes to see, just as your word says, Elisha prayed to you and asked his servant to see so that we might see the legions of the armies of the Lord of hosts that battle for us. Jesus, help us to see you as the glorious king, the wonderful savior, the matchless, righteous, crucified and risen one. As we take of communion, let us do it in remembrance. As we sing in worship, let us do it in exuberance. God, we need you. Let our hearts be as one this morning, singing for joy that the gospel is as sure as the sun rose this morning. And finally, God, give us that one step of obedience that you and you alone have called us to. Make it clear to us and give us the courage to be obedient, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.